Gospel according to John, chapter 5, and just a few verses there, beginning at verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. So we know quickeneth is an old English word, doesn't mean much to us anymore. He raises up the dead, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. For me, I can never escape the fact that the fundamentals of the Bible need to be accented over and over again. And I have explained that to you. I've also explained to you that in review of my own life in ministry, one of the mistakes that I've made is going from subject to subject in an attempt to preach the whole counsel of God and to be balanced, which is the right thing to do. But sometimes we leave these fundamentals too quickly. And we need to be reminded, all of us need to be reminded, God created a Sabbath day, which we now celebrate on Sunday, to be reminded. While simultaneously we rest our bodies, we re-educate the mind. We are reminded of what this book says. And so I want to talk to you today about Jesus' coming, his second coming, where we understand from verses like this one here and others that I'll give you, that when he comes, he's coming to judge. Now, I have a one-hour Bible study I've been doing for a month now. I just started it online, and it's got a good amount of viewers from all over the world. And we just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and in chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And this has become almost a byword for many people, not only inside the church, but outside the church. A statement is made, could be by myself, a preacher. And they just say, rather in a slipshod manner, I thought Jesus said not to judge. Well, I've already covered this on the air. If you're interested, you could look it up and listen to it. What Jesus was saying is not to be judgmental. We make judgments all the time. With that in mind, we come to a verse like this. If Jesus intended that no one should ever make a judgment, then this verse here wouldn't make sense, and others that we're going to read. The point is that when Jesus comes again to the world, he's coming as a judge, not a savior. He's to the world now for the last two millennium, a savior. He is to you and to me now. But when he arrives at the second time, or for the second time, he's not coming as a savior, not at all. These are fundamentals of the Bible, which I remind you, we hear very little of these days. Fundamentals. I've often said to you and to many others, anyone can read it, it's right there. Anything that I've preached for the last 45 years is written right in the book, right there, right in front of you. I don't claim to have secret knowledge or extra wisdom that no man on the planet has. I really don't. In fact, it's just the opposite. I'm just a common man who spent his life reading the plain text of Scripture. And these are fundamentals. Now, there's reasons that we don't hear them anymore, and mainly that falls into the category of a great falling away from the faith. But with respect to Jesus coming a second time, not as a savior, 
as a judge, to judge the living and the dead. If I were to ask you this question, what has been in the 20th century, we could say, what was the trial of the century? If you have a bit of history under your belt, if you're fairly well read, you may name a trial that in your mind stands out to be the most important trial of the century. 20th century, we could start with someplace like Nuremberg. In 1945 and 1946, 177 defendants were brought to trial to be tried for war crimes. Officers in the Nazi army, members of the Gestapo, were brought before men to be tried for crimes of war. 25 were sentenced to death. So you may say Nuremberg, and some do. Then again, we could go over to 1925 and talk about Clarence Darrow facing off, well, he wasn't the only lawyer, it was a team of lawyers, facing off another team of lawyers that was headed by William Jennings Bryan in the defense of John Scopes as to whether he was teaching evolution, which in Tennessee at that time was forbidden, has been repealed since. And interestingly, just on that, as an aside to that, Scopes couldn't actually remember, did he ever even teach on evolution? But the American Civil Liberties Union and others got behind him and said, we just need a defendant for this. We've got to bring this to trial. We've got to bring it to court. Well, Darrow argued with Brian and Darrow's team, and Brian's team argued back and forth. Finally, Scopes was found guilty, and he was fined $25. But then it was eventually repealed. Now, you can argue that that may have been one of the trials of the century because of the profound effect it's had on the entire planet. Evolution versus creationism. The Bible versus science, which at the moment it seems like science has won the day for the moment. And then again, if you're acquainted with history, you might name other things that come to your mind. O.J. Simpson, 1995. That was by far the most watched trial in American history due to the technology. 60 million Americans watched that trial. And then you can keep on going. You could talk about the trial of Liz Borden, Lizzie Borden and her axe murders in the late 19th century. You could talk about Manson murders in the late 60s. You could talk about a lot of things and say, well, I think this trial was the trial of the century. But let me tell you something. The trial of the ages has not yet taken place. Jesus Christ is coming to judge those that are living and those that are dead, for there'll be a resurrection of the dead, of the just first and also of the unjust. Every single person ever born, ever lived, is going to be brought into judgment. Now, I'm going to talk to you about having been brought to judgment in a few moments, but that's what the Bible teaches. Everyone who's ever been born is going to face a judgment by the Creator. That brings to my mind not just trials where people were found guilty or not guilty, whatever they were guilty or not guilty. That brings to my mind unsolved crimes. For example... Jack the Ripper in England, again, in the 19th century, 1888. And they never discovered who that actually was. There's a number of suspects people believe could have actually been him. One of them, actually, his name is Barnett with two T's. And one of the interesting suspects on that list, believe it or not, is Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. They've never proved, though. They never found out ever who did these heinous crimes. And then we have in 1968 and 69 the Zodiac Killer who by, I say his, own admission, killed up to 37 people and taunted the police to find me and catch me. They never did. Never found the Zodiac killer there in California. And the list goes on. We could talk about Socrates and his trial. 
And I suppose that many people versed, and especially well-versed in history, would have one trial that they say, I think this was pivotal, or at least interesting. Of course, Jesus' trial. But I'm submitting to you today that the trial of the ages has not yet occurred. When we read in the book of the Revelation, every single person that's ever lived, and in this case, just so we are accurate, those who rejected the offer of God for mercy, those who, when they were told that you have sinned before God, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, did not acknowledge that. They basically say, without saying it most times, no, I haven't. I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. I'm basically a good person. That's not what the scriptures say. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, your righteousness is as filthy rags. Now you've seen people, homeless people, many of whom, the majority of whom are not dressed the way we would dress, not the way I'm dressed at the moment. Filthy rags, a stench. Because man will always justify himself by comparing himself to other men. I'm more righteous than some people when I compare myself to them. Maybe I would say I'm better. That's how man thinks. But when you read God's word, it levels the playing field. It says, all of you have sinned. And all of you have come short of the glory of God. Not just glory the way we think of being a good testimony in the world. But of actually seeing God for eternity in that place that we call heaven. When Jesus said, I've come to give them life. We often translate that in our minds to, I'm going to heaven. The trial of the ages has not yet taken place. It's going to be yet future. And I read this to you some weeks back, but I'd like to read it again. Because this is one of the earliest creeds of the church. And you understand that creeds were designed to codify the beliefs in as brief and terse a statement as possible. So that others knew what is the essence of the gospel. The kerygma is the Greek word for preaching. Of which I will say again, without equivocation, we hear very little of today. There's a lot of accommodation. Make sure the people in front of me don't get mad at me and leave. I saw this just this past week, a statement from Thomas Paine, one of our founders. And he said something to the effect that if you are afraid to offend people, then you cannot be honest. And so the truth is the truth, whether it's liked or disliked, whether it's received or it's not received, it's still the truth. And the truth is, Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. You understand Catholic means universal, not Roman Catholic. Everyone who professes to be a Christian. The communion of saints, that's every believer, not just special people voted in by a committee. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. The Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest creeds of the church, codify the fundamentals of the truth. I have always tried to accent fundamentals because I do not believe, and especially in the time in which we live, that it is very profitable to people 
coming to hear the gospel, to talk about issues that may or may not affect their life for eternity. That's what this is all about, as I tell you frequently. That's why we're here. We're here today to listen to the kerygma, the preaching, or the essence of what the gospel is. And the Apostles' Creed does as good a job as any of the creeds in codifying the basic beliefs that are found here in the Bible. And one of them, the one I'm accenting today, is that Jesus Christ is coming not as a savior other than to the church, but we'll get to that. He's coming as a judge. I don't know that the majority of people, not only in the world, that's almost a given. I don't know if the majority of people in the church believe it. We look at Psalm chapter 9 or Psalm 9 verses 7 and 8. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. Notice the words world. The world. He will judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. It's not saying here that the Lord is coming to judge all the bad people. But he's coming to judge all the people. In the 50th Psalm, beginning at verse 3, Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he might judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And with that little statement there, I want to mention the fact that God will judge those that have rejected him. But he will save those that have received him. When God said, I'll give you mercy, and you said yes, you're saved from the wrath to come. I want to say this again. That's what this is all about. And I know that I'm redundant. I know that I repeat this a lot. But why? Well, first of all, there's many people who have never heard this. Many thousands of people listen that have never heard this. But you'll hear it again and again and again as we get closer and closer to the coming of Christ. Saved. That's what you want to be. Saved from the wrath to come. And here I'm pointing out to you that when we talk about Christ's coming, the first advent, now the second advent, he's already come once before, we want to see that this has been prophesied. This didn't just start when Jesus came. This has been prophesied for thousands of years in the Holy Scriptures. Then again, Psalm 96, let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh. He cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world in righteousness and the people with his truth. Psalm 98, let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. It's repeated again and again in the Old Testament. The Lord will come, and the Lord will judge. How is it, I still wrestle with this, I truly do, how is it that such plain scriptures can be here in God's book, the Bible, and in the hands of a preacher, whoever they may be and wherever they may be, and these things not be told to the people? And further, as I mentioned, to be reminded again and again, because we forget. And we're told in the scriptures to make sure that you don't forget. Peter would write, he says, I'm bringing these things to your remembrance. If you know anything about the study of a trained memory, but memory in general, you're studying for a test you have to take. So you study and you repeat again and again and again. Why? So you don't forget when the test comes. You don't forget what the answers are. 
So I cannot understand intellectually or otherwise why the preaching of the fundamentals of the gospel, and this is one of them, obviously, with the Bible in the hands of men, that the people are not being told these things in an hour in history. When I believe there's never been a more important hour in history than the one we're in right now. Prepare to meet thy God. And when you hear something so much, like William James once said, nothing is so absurd, but if you repeat it often enough, it will be believed. Well, the opposite is true. If you don't repeat it at all, people don't remember. I said during the communion service, thinking of myself first, do I really still understand what this means? Do I really understand after almost half a century what God has done for me? And why I need to be one of the most grateful people in all the world. And I would say anyone who knows that they have truly been saved will be among that group. That songs sung without spirit are just wrote. Buddy Rich, the great drummer, preferred to hire young musicians to play. Because they weren't like the old musicians that had played these pieces so many times. They just playing it for a gig, for the money, go home. You watch Buddy Rich, he's in his 60s at the time, and he has these young musicians. When they're playing, they're playing with their hearts. You remember that when Jesus came and spoke to these churches in the book of the Revelation, which is modern Turkey, he said to Ephesus, you know, everything about your church is great. You got great doctrine. You know who's a true apostle, who's a false apostle. You've done all these things, but I'm going to paraphrase this for you to stay with the illustration. But you have no more heart. You've left your first love. You don't have it anymore. Well, even Buddy Rich understood this when it came to music. The passion isn't in, or at least it wasn't in, many of the older musicians. So he hired young musicians, people who still play with a passion. Of course, he could stand all by himself just with a five-minute or even a two-minute drum solo. But when he was playing with his orchestra, you will see he's surrounded by young people. But you don't have to lose your passion because you're old. As a matter of fact, we're commanded not to lose our passion. Some years ago, we had a church fellowship with a bonfire, and one of the younger guys came up to me, and we were standing right near the fire. And this is going back over 20 years ago. He said, Pastor, how do you not lose your fire? And I said to him, it's just like this bonfire here. Now, it was burning, I don't know how many feet high, five feet high, six feet high, and it would keep on going as long as we put logs in it. I said, but if we didn't put any more logs, eventually this thing's just going to die out. And there's the secret. It's a daily commitment, not monthly and yearly and resolutions. It's a daily commitment that we decide as individuals, I'm not going to lose my passion for the Bible, and prayer, and Jesus Christ and the things that he's done. I'm not going to lose my passion for the study of the word of God and theology. I'm not going to lose it. God help me. God give me your grace. I'm not going to lose my passion. doesn't matter how old I get. I saw a man once, he was a speaker at a dinner at the time, I think he was around 80. He had been around for a long time, preacher for 60 years, maybe a little bit more. And honestly, to tell you the truth, I expected that when he spoke, it would have been a bit dry, mainly because of his age. I'll never forget that night as he spoke. And the passion, you could see it was still there, you could hear it. It was spinning around while he was talking, he was animated. Now, of course, yes, you can fake those things, there are some good actors out there. But I don't believe that. And he was talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And here he was, 80-ish. He was old, talking with a passion about Jesus, about the Bible, about prayer. Obviously, or evidently, he had never lost the fire because he kept stoking it day by day. And that's the reason, my dear friends, that so many people, their love grows cold. 
Monday's not the same as Sunday. Well, even, let's face it, Sunday's just another day for most people, even the many who profess Christ. It's just another day. Oh, yeah, go to services maybe. But we already know the songs that are going to be sung in most cases. And if you've been here with me, I've been in this city going, September will be 36 years. You already know what my personality is like. Just another day. Let me tell you something, my friend. Not for me, it's not. The more I look out of this world, the more I see the signs of Jesus coming. The more I keep pressing my suit in a manner of speaking for his arrival. God, let my garments be spotless. Let my robe be white. Help me. Cleanse me again in the blood of the lamb. Keep the fire going. That's what we need because Jesus is coming the second time to judge the living and the dead. And that doctrine goes right to this book and it's 2,000 years. It was more than 2,000 years. I was reading verses to you from the Old Testament. Over 2,000 years, God has been writing through men. I'm coming. That's quite an announcement and plenty of time to be prepared. I know some people don't care for company. They get anxious and they get nervous because they think in their mind that people are hard to please. And people are critical and judgmental. Some people don't want company for those reasons. There's other reasons too. But Jesus is going to arrive. He's going to come. And he's given us plenty of time to prepare. Plenty of time. We read in the scriptures that the reason God doesn't judge sin, I mean for an eternal condemnation, that's what we read here, that verse, that word, right away because he's merciful. He gives time. He gives a lot of space. It's time to change. And he gives us the time. But on the calendar of God, known only to the Father, there is the last day when he arrives to do what he has prophesied to do in both Old and New Testaments. And we read in John that all judgment has been committed to Jesus. There is, and by necessity should be, in our Bible, or God's Bible, warning to young people. I frequently talk to young people on various subjects. And it's interesting to me, there are young people, 40 or more years younger than me, and they'll ask me questions, not only about working out or some tips. What about life? One young man has been sick, and he texts me a picture of himself and wanted to know what, in his medical case, what he should do. And I gave him some advice. First, see a doctor. And then, with his particular case, just rest in tons and tons of water. So people come to me, and every once in a while, talking to a young person, they just shake their head and say, no, I don't think so. And me, just my personality, I said, so someone 50 years older than you, who's done what you're doing for more than your lifetime, doubled, you're going to just say, no, I'm not going to do it. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. From the beginning of history, from the beginning of time, young people have been famous, which includes you and me, of not taking advice from older people. And with that in mind, and I bring this up because we're going to read something here. I'm going to read it to you. A warning specifically given to young people in the book relative to the subject of Jesus Christ coming to judge the living and the dead. We read it from a man who started out so well that even Jesus said he was the wisest, though Jesus said in the context that one wiser has come. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, Solomon, who once again started out so well, who when he dedicated the temple that he built through the instruction of God, asked God for wisdom. Didn't ask for money or fame or the life of his enemies and so on. He asked, give me wisdom that I may guide your people. And certainly he was so wise that the queen of Ethiopia would come and say, the half of your life and story has not been told. And yet, it's the same Solomon that violated God so badly 
that amongst his thousand wives, who the Bible says turned his heart from the Lord, they began to, in Israel, began to offer these children in the fire to Molech, burn them alive. This came from the wisest man that's ever lived. But his life didn't end up so well. Did he make the kingdom? I don't know. I do know this. Listen, this is coming from a man who truly knows what he's talking about. Ecclesiastes 11, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. This is sarcasm. Very rarely do you find sarcasm in the Bible. The Apostle Paul used it. And here Solomon is saying, go ahead, walk, young men, walk the way you want. Walk by the side of your eyes. Or I'll just paraphrase, the lusts of your flesh. You know, do what you want. But remember this, the day is coming that God is going to bring you into judgment. At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite verses, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter after he has lamented for 12 chapters. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he covers everything. He covers drunkenness. He covers women. He covers wisdom. He covers foolishness. He covers everything. And then he says somewhere in Ecclesiastes, he says, I discovered that both the wise man and the fool, they both go down in the grave. Or as we know it from the game of chess, they all go back in the box at the end of the game. But there is a difference. We will make a note of it in just a second. And so here he says, after all these things, after everything that I have done, and he calls himself the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, the man's days under the sun here on earth, says the preacher. He finishes with this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You see, I'm trying to point out to you by reading the Apostles' Creed and, of course, the text, that there's coming a day known only to God, but it seems as though it's getting very close. How close? I don't know. I know California is almost underwater. I've seen pictures. The water's up to the peak of the garage. And I'm going to offer this to you as a suggestion. When we read through the Old Testament in particular, of course, we know the history after the New Testament was written and what has happened. For example, all the churches in Asia Minor at the time or in the book of the Revelation, they're all gone. Jesus said, repent or else I'll take your candlestick away. Well, they're still Christians in Turkey, but they never took what he said to heart. This, you see, this really is the litmus test of our faith. Do we believe God is going to do what he said he's going to do, whether it's good or it's bad? Well, I'm telling you that I do. And what I want to say to you is this. As you read your news, and I know that many of you are up to speed on what's going on in our country and around the world, we see in specific areas the weather, floods, famines around the world. And I read, and I read, well, at least as much as you do, maybe more. I hear of people making frightening announcements about the economy and what's coming, and I don't know that that's really coming. This much I do know, and I will share this with you. God will always take care of his own. And it's not that I'm indifferent to what's going to happen. I'm not. I'm just confident that God will take care of his own. So I keep putting in the logs, not one day at a time, an hour at a time every day to make sure the fire keeps on burning. And for 45 years, it's been burning. And by God's grace, I don't forget to keep stoking the fire. It won't go out. 
But I'll tell you this. Jesus said, in some, it's going to go out. Why? Well, we read it here again in Matthew. Because iniquity shall abound, lawlessness, which is basically just sin, the love of many shall wax cold. The very thing I mentioned just a few minutes ago. Oh, I still love Jesus. That's what Peter said when the scripture says he followed afar off. Anybody could see it. He wasn't as close to Jesus as he used to be. Eventually he would deny him and then he would be forgiven and he went on to be faithful to the Lord. In my mind, if there was ever a time to keep the fire roaring hot, it's now. Because God has said things and done things in the past and he's going to do them again. Let me say this to you. I'm speaking from the heart. As I see Christian people, people I know, I see a hardness developing around the heart. The seed of the word of God goes in and kind of bounces off. How do I know that? Because I watch the behavior after the message has been given. And that's a warning that we have in the book of Hebrews. Brethren, he says, let us make sure that we don't have our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, which we gave up a year ago, 12 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was. We gave it up. But since the stoking stopped somewhere along the way, the heart is growing cold. Now your habits may still be there, service time comes and you arrive, but the heart is far away. That's what Jesus said to the one church that he commended that they were doctrinally straight and were searching out who was teaching the truth and who wasn't. The problem was they lost Christ in the middle of all that. That fire wasn't there anymore. That passion wasn't there. Many of you can remember when you were first born again, you handed out tracts, you invited people to services, you invited people to know Christ. This is the time. When we had our friend and brother here some months back, Dan Johnson, he spoke about R.G. Lee and his famous sermon that he preached called Payday Someday. A sermon he preached 1,200 times or in the neighborhood. That's a lot. And in this famous message, Payday Someday, which is basically talking about the judgment of God, R.G. Lee, he was the pastor at the time of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, is still there. That's the church where Adrian Rogers pastored. It's been around since 1903. R.G. Lee, also the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, he said this in his message, Payday Someday. Did God mean what he said? Or was he playing a prank on royalty? Did payday come? Payday Someday is written in the constitution of God's universe. The retributive providence of God is a reality as certain as the laws of gravitation are a reality. The people he was speaking about in the message was Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked king and his even more wicked wife. And to Ahab and Jezebel, payday came as certainly as night follows day, because sin carries in itself the seed of its own fatal penalty. In other words, people collapse under the weight of their own sin. And though we listen to people, and I certainly hear my fair share of it, it's not me that's at fault, it's him and her and all the rest. What causes a person to sink down into eternity without Christ is the weight of their own sin, not of their parents or their grandparents or the government or the people in their church or the pastor or anybody else. It's always back to the individual. Lee went on to say, though, the only way I know for any man or woman on earth to escape the sinner's payday on earth and the sinner's hell beyond, making sure of the Christian's payday, is through Christ Jesus, who took the sinner's place on the cross becoming for all sinners all that God must judge, that sinners through faith in Christ Jesus might become all that God cannot judge. That's an important statement. 
Jesus, it says, became sin for us. God judged every single sin you or I have ever committed. Judged them all in Jesus. So that now God, he used the word cannot. I'll use the word will not. He will not judge you at all. The thief on the cross, how much time did he have left in his life before he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Well, if some committee got a hold of him, they would have said, come down at the cross first. We've got to talk about this. We've got to make sure you're sincere. We've got to make sure you really know your theology, which eventually you should. All he said to Jesus is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, truthfully, I'm telling you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Whenever we have this communion service, that's what we're celebrating. That's what we're celebrating. God has already judged those that have taken his offer of mercy and grace. That's what we're celebrating every week. And I said it today, and I'm probably going to be saying it again. We can't forget this. We must not forget this. And my friends, be very, very careful how you treat one another. It's upsetting for me to see how Christians can treat each other and then walk away and say, I'm saved. I think you better get on your knees and check it again. Because he says, all men will know you are my disciples by your love one to another. And so that we don't forget, there is no one that's better than the other. But there is one caveat that we have to make sure that we didn't turn back like a dog to our own vomit. I've seen my dog do that on a regular basis. And it's not something that we humans do. Dogs do it for their own reason. But we don't do it. We mop it up some other way. We must make sure that our love to God is so filled with knowledge of what he has done. That when I look at you or you look at me, you can be merciful. Because the book says he shall have judgment. This is the subject today. He shall have judgment without mercy who has shown no mercy. Be as merciful as possible to those you can be merciful to. And particularly to those who profess Christ. But let me give this again this warning. Some have a very twisted idea of what grace is. And I see it all. I hear it all the time. That's my business. By grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God. We know that. But we also know that grace makes a change in us so that we don't desire to sin against God anymore. And we may. And sometimes we do. But when we do, the conscience is so sensitive and still on fire, to use that same illustration, The conscience is so sensitive that we realize this is wrong. What troubles me when I listen and watch Christians is that they can justify what they've done when the book says it's wrong. Listen to I'll say that again. What bothers me about professing Christians is that they can do things and then justify what they've done when God says it's wrong. How can you do that? You can't do that. Look at my friends. We need to know what's on the line here. It's literally heaven or hell. And we can't be posers. Because the intellect is able to absorb information. There was a series of books put out in the 60s called The Bluffer's Guide. And it was a bunch of them. The Bluffer's Guide about wine. The Bluffer's Guide about all these different subjects. And it gave you all the facts. Memory experts, in order to just play tricks, nothing harmful, would memorize the facts and come off as an expert. When indeed they were not an expert. They were bluffing. When you stand before God, you don't want to try to bluff God. You could bluff me, but you can't bluff God. God knows the heart. We don't want to be posers. We don't want to be bluffers. We want to be people who are truly the real deal and not necessarily to be acknowledged by men. Because if you look at the prophets, well, did they get much acknowledgement by men? Yeah. 
Most of it was death. And then we look at the apostles. Did they get acknowledged by a man? Yeah, most of it was persecution and death. And then there's Jesus. And I'm not saying that happens to everybody. Obviously it doesn't. But we're not living to please men. We're living to please God. I didn't finish this thought earlier, and I want to finish this thought. From my point of view, we are seeing things here and there, a little here, a little there, a little, around our country and around the world that I believe is the judgment of God. Not just a freak of nature. Oh, what happened? It's climate change. Our government now is so corrupted, you don't know who to believe. I'm telling you the truth. I'm fairly intelligent. I don't know who to believe. I don't care what side they're on. Oh, they're on the right. I don't know who to believe. I truly don't. Well, that's why I got the book. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. I'm so grateful for this book. I run all my thoughts through it. And when I don't know what to believe about medicine, I don't know what to believe about anything, politics, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, it doesn't matter so much to me because I believe in Jesus. I believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in those doctrines I mentioned to you in the Apostles' Creed. I believe them. With the help of God and the grace of God, I'm going to continue to believe them to my grave. And that's with the help and grace of God, because I realize how easy it is for me to put my foot on a slippery stone and be gone, be out of this pulpit. And that's not my ambition, but I think what helps me is I've crossed streams before, so have you. And you've got to be careful where you place your foot. So you don't twist an ankle or fall into that stream or whatever, hit your head on the rock. And when you're walking with God, you realize how fragile and frail we really are. The psalmist wrote that. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, remind me to number my days that I remember how frail I am. This is not the time to be a banting rooster puffing your chest out. This is a time to be bending low before God and striking the chest with the Latin expression some of us learned in the Latin mass many years ago, Mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, through my fault, not through your fault. If I'm a good pastor or a bad pastor, it has nothing to do with you. That's the truth. I can't walk away from this pope and say, I'd be a better pastor if only these people would leave. <laughs> if only you'd go to another church and God send me a new batch, I'd be a great preacher. No. I'm either good or bad by the grace of God and my ability to work with God, cooperate with God. It has nothing to do with you. But I'm just as grateful that whether you live right or you live wrong, it has nothing to do with me. Nothing. Well, maybe not nothing. That's not correct. If I preach the gospel, if I'm faithful to open this book and tell you what it says, then it has nothing to do with me. That was your decision. I would not want to be in the place of someone right now that received Christ years ago and is in doubt of their salvation. And I wouldn't want to be in the place of someone who's presumptuous. I was this, I was that, I was this, I was that, I was raised here, I knew this one, this was my pastor, that was this. But now, and read Matthew 7. I read it on the daily Bible study this week for the people who watch. And then will I say unto them, I never do you. But Lord, and I'll paraphrase it again. I preached in your name for however long God gives me. Let's say it's a half a century. I preached for half a century. I did many wonderful works. I even cast out a few devils in your name. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. You see, we don't want to be in a place of uncertainty. And the Holy Spirit, and only the Holy Spirit, will fill you with such an assurance that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, that you're saved. Saved. And you know what you're saved from. And the man in the pulpit is just a man with a book. 
and hopefully the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. Every time I come out of those doors, I always tell God, if you don't touch this message, nothing's going to happen. God touched the message. Change people's hearts. Let the hard hearts be softened. Let the soft hearts continue to thrive and be strong. There's so many verses of Jesus talking about judgment. The 25th chapter of Matthew, I exhort you to read it today. Now, you know Matthew 24, and you're going to look at your news, and you're going to say, well, there's an earthquake. And there have been many earthquakes, and you're not hearing about many. And famines and so on. <clears throat> wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, people against people. And we see these things coming to pass. A great falling away. The lawlessness inside the church is at a point now where, I don't know, I mean, this is a true story told by Jerry Lucas, the famous basketball player, Hall of Famer. There was a man that was so focused on the game. This is a true story. He was a great shooter and all this, as Lucas explains the story. When the time for the game to begin came, and he took off his warm-up suit, he had no uniform on. He had absolutely nothing on. He was so focused on the game, he did not know that he was actually naked. That's a true story. And it's humorous, of course. But how about being naked before God and you don't know it? Because you were presumptuous, because you were in a Bible, or you were raised on a Bible, or your parents had a Bible, or whatever people claim. Don't let that happen to you. Make sure. You're not wearing the emperor's new clothes, but you're wearing the garment of praise or the garment of Christ. Because the main event here in the church of Jesus Christ that belongs to Christ is being saved. So we don't want to bandy the word around and lose the meaning of being saved. History has some interesting things. Of course, God's in control of history. And I'm certain when I mention the name of Mordecai Ham, most of you here would not be familiar with who he was. Mordecai Ham. I was a preacher. Back in the days of the tent revivals and itinerant evangelists, real evangelists, in the sense that evangelists really trying to save people's souls, not just keep warm Christians even warmer. Mordecai Ham was preaching. I want to say it was Kentucky. It was down south. 1934. And he was preaching on a text or the title or the subject of Christ is our refuge. It's a salvation message. And as he was preaching in that congregation, there was a man who had murdered four people. Now out. Done his time. However much time that was. And in that meeting, as Mordecai Ham was preaching, it struck this man, we assume by the Holy Spirit, that Christ is his refuge. And he shouted out, I'm saved, saved, saved. That night, J.P. Schofield was there, and the words of that man, that inmate, that criminal, that murderer, pierced his heart, and he wrote the words to the hymn, I've found a friend in Jesus, or also saved, saved. But what is really interesting to me is as Mordecai Ham was going around, and he has this murderer, I mean, those type of testimonies are always a little more dramatic we have a man in our church that's killed four people, and he's now the head of whatever. When Mordecai Ham went just shortly after to South Carolina, it was a farmer's family over here, fairly devout, but hadn't been to one of his meetings. Now, one of the hired help was talking to one of the boys and telling him about these meetings. He really should go. But he was lampooning the meetings and so on and so forth. But one night he decided to go. And under the preaching of Mordecai Ham, 
just a few months after this, the other man was saved. This farm boy, this son of a farmer, his heart was touched. And when the time came, he said, if you want to receive Christ, come forward. He found himself walking down the aisle. That night he received Christ. He went home and he told his family that he had went to the meeting. And as he was making a sandwich, the story goes, he told his mother, he said, oh, mother, tonight I've been saved. This is a family that reads the Bible. So put that into your minds. This is a family that reads the Bible. And the young boy comes home and he says, oh, mother, tonight I've been saved. His name was Billy. His last name was Graham. And how many people came to Christ through the preaching of Billy Graham because one night someone invited him to a meeting where a minister that most people have never heard his name, though he was fairly popular in his day, led him to Christ and the murderer. And this is the kingdom because we're saved, saved, saved. Listen to the words. I found a friend who is all to me. His love is ever true. I love to tell how he lifted me and what his grace can do for you, saved by his power divine, saved to new life sublime. Life now is sweet, and my joy is complete, for I'm saved, saved, saved. A preacher leads a murderer to Christ. A preacher leads a young farm boy, having no idea of the touch of God that was on the life of Billy Graham, and also inspires a composer to write these words that is in all the hymnals that so many people sing. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the spoken word. That's the power of Christ anointing his word. It's the knowledge that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. It's the experience of people walking down the aisle, which we rarely do here anyway. But it was a practice for a long time, walking down the aisle and saying, Christ, save me tonight, mother. And little did mother or father or his family have any idea that this man would travel the globe and preach to tens of millions of people. Amen. Just a farm boy. Like Amos. Just a sheep herder. Saved. 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 You see, if we don't understand that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead, then the word saved doesn't make any sense. Amen. Are you saved? Yeah, okay, I'm saved, yeah. And this constant infatuation of preachers with all these doctrines in their hands of not telling people that. Don't know they need to be saved. But Mordecai Ham and certainly many preachers before and after him did know it and led murderers and world famous evangelists to the Lord with the simple plain gospel. Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead and he's offering you mercy. Come to the cross. Be saved. And then you can go home and you don't talk about today. I heard a great speech. The pastor gave a great speech. I'm going to go out and conquer that job. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and you lose your soul? You want to go home and say, oh, mother, tonight I've been saved. 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 And so we have all these scriptures. Look at me scrolling through here. The last one I want to leave you with is a familiar one for many of you in Revelation chapter 20. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. We read of these stories of people who see God, and everything is so, like, fantastic. But here Christ appears, and everybody's fleeing. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Oh, young man, remember, Solomon said, go ahead, do what you want. But remember, for all these things, you'll be brought into judgment. This message would not be complete unless I just put a heavy accent on the fact that we have been saved. Anything. Your alcoholism, your drug addiction, your adultery, your fornication, your perverse sexuality, thefts, lies, false witness, everything was laid on Jesus. And he paid the penalty, which was death, his death, so that now God will not judge any of those things in you. And that, my friend, is why the gospel in Greek and in English means good news. Good news. No matter how rough your life is today, or could be in the future, nothing could be so bad as leaving that body without Christ. And yet you have Christ. You have Jesus. And if you would just have that as the foundation of your life, and stoke the fire every day so the fire never goes out, in this world of iniquity, which again, you can find it right in the midst of the church of people who profess Christ, preachers included, that's obvious. They make the news faster than anybody in the seats do. If you can keep that fire going, on that day, you'll be able to at least understand what the Apostle Paul meant, that I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Saved. 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 Christ holds the future in his hands. And the offer of mercy he has given to every single one of us. For those of you who say you're saved and you know you're saved, keep the fire burning. I don't care how old you are. You keep the fire burning. But if you're here today and you're not saved, today is your day to say to Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and be my Savior. And if that is you, but you just ask Christ into your heart and he will come in. And you can walk around singing, I'm saved, saved, saved. So, Father, I don't know the hearts of men. I do know and learn by experience that people go to hear people talk from the pulpit and they're not saved. They're in a position where they're just not right with you. Help them, God, today to be right with you, to be truly saved, that others may see the change. And of course, they're going to lampoon and laugh and tempt and all that stuff. Well, we all go through that. So what? So what? Help us to keep the fire burning. Help those who may not be saved to invite you to be their savior, to invite you into their heart, that they may be saved, saved, saved. For the rest, God, I pray, keep the fire burning. Let the fire just keep on burning. Help us to stoke it. Satan keeps trying to throw water on it, but that won't affect it. As long as we keep stoking it with the wood of the word of God and of prayer, your anointing will keep the fire burning, God, so we don't have a reproof or rather suffer a reproof from you. But rather we can give you the glory and the honor and the praise. So this time on earth is short, very short. Help us to apply our hearts to wisdom, knowing the brevity of life that we may know you, the power of your resurrection. Father, today we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor for these things. And all of it in Jesus' name. Can you say amen with me this morning? Amen. Amen.